All right, hold on. Let me load up our Google Doc of ideas. This is going to be very, very disappointing to look at this Google document of ideas. It's empty. Not found. No. Cheap talk notes. All right. Oh, yeah, we got nothing in here. That's awful. Terrible. The, here's the problem, Marcus. The, 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 the reason that we have no content yeah. is that we're, we already did all of this once. I know. Last year. We, we did it. We gave everything that we had in season one. All the obvious ideas have been taken. All the as, obvious as ideas. As with all like season twos of, of every show we've ever watched, like it's, it's slow going at first. So what we need is new. We need fresh ideas and yeah. questions from the audience. Oh, that's interesting. So I think I think we should open it up to student questions with SpeakPipe. You got ever use SpeakPipe? As usual, I have no idea what you're talking about. So SpeakPipe is like online voicemail. And basically you go to www.speakpipe.com slash cheap talk and leave a message. And then we can play those questions, comments, observations. Ah, why didn't we think about this last season? This is a great plot twist. This is great. This is good. This is good. I like right. this. Yeah, I mean, the problem is going to be they're asking questions that I don't know the answer to. That's that's always a tricky. Well, but we like control the show. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's not like you're on the spot in class. This isn't live radio. That's awkward. We, we, we have to say, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Someone right. is screening the calls, so it's it's fine. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Caplow. I'm an assistant professor of government here at William & Mary. Joining me today, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hey, Marcus, how are you doing today? Hi, Professor Caplow. How are you? I'm, very, I'm doing very well because last night we're filming this on October 6th. Last night, the Red Sox won. I'm very happy about that. Congratulations. It was, a, it was an well, enjoyable I, game. I didn't, have, I didn't have much to do with it, but I, I still will enjoy the victory. We've set up a system for you, the listener, to tell us what you want to talk about. Maybe ask us a question directly. So we'd like to invite you to do that. Go to speakpipe.com slash cheap talk, record your message, and um, we'll, we'll see what we get. We're, we're looking forward to getting your input on what we should be talking about or questions you have about international relations or, or what's going on in the world. So we appreciate your uh, in participation, your engagement with that. Last time we, last time we spoke, we were talking about IR theory, international relations theory, whether it makes sense to test such theory, and the kind of um, pros and cons of different approaches within this spectrum from pure theory to uh, kind of a focus on different methodologies. And one related issue that we didn't talk about is the relationship between international relations academics and folks who do international policy for a living, the policy side of the house. And we sometimes talk in, in our business about the gap between academic political science or international relations and policy-focused political science or international relations. And we sometimes try to bridge the gap in making academic ideas more understandable, palatable, um, useful for policymakers. And there's been a lot of hand-wringing in our business about kind of lack of influence in general of political scientists and international relations-focused academics compared to, say, economists, who um, when, you're, when you're building a, a new administration and government um, and you're looking for people to handle international trade, you often will get a bunch of academic economists to come uh, join, the, join the effort. But when you're looking for people to help 
plan your di diplomatic uh, work or your international policy, you don't often turn to political scientists. And so there's been a lot of Henry in the field over this that, you know, as political science kind of lost its influence in terms of um, policy advising and making sure that that um, policy is going in, in the right direction. Uh, what do you think about this, this bridging the gap debate? Well, this is obviously a very big question. Um, I, I think one useful place to start might be getting the argument uh, or an argument on the table for why this gap exists. And so I think there's sort of two different ways to think about this. One, one sort of lays the, the blame primarily with the academics, so people like you and me. Uh, and then the other way of thinking about it kind of lays the blame with the policymakers. So let's talk about the first group first, so the, the academics. I think the argument here uh, kind of goes something like this, that academics you know, live in, in these ivory towers, uh, disconnected from the quote-unquote real world, often have very little policy experience, if any. Um, and are basically, you know, engaged in an enterprise which rewards uh, turgid prose and sort of making your ideas as hard to understand as possible uh, so that you can speak to a very limited community. Um, and that community does not include sort of outsiders of that community, right? So there's sort of like a, a self-isolating aspect of academia that has to do with, you know, not just the way that we write and the way that we talk. But even sort of the concepts that we use um, and the methods that we use in particular, I think just are, are sort of shielded off a little bit or siloed off from the, the greater public. So if I went out to Richmond Road and I showed them a, you know, an article out of the American Political Science Review, one of the best journals in our, in our discipline, and I said, you know, can you read this and tell me what the implications are uh, for, for policy or something like that? It would probably be very difficult for most people to understand what was going on and if I just picked an article at random. Uh, and it has to do, I think, for because of language and the way that we use concepts and, and some of those things. So I think that's, that's part of it. Um, the, the, the more stringent criticism, I think, on the empirical side is that as political scientists try to be more scientific, so as we've tried to sort of get better at making predictions and we've tried to um, you know, better understand the world around us, there's been a push to get more you know, kind of teched up. And what I mean by that is simply sort of you know, using more sophisticated uh, modeling, uh, statistical methods, all this kind of stuff that we learn and borrow from other disciplines like economics or physics or biology or wherever, wherever they come from, we basically try to get better and better at doing uh, methodology. And methodology just is how, we, how are we answering questions. And that push, I think, to a lot of policymakers uh, looks very, might look impressive. They might say, wow, this, these people know statistics. Uh, but because very difficult to decipher what it actually means because it's it's very technical and you need a lot of background knowledge and you have to have a, a lot of background in statistics and math and things like that to really kind of make sense of, of what's going on. So in addition to this problem where, you know, we sort of talk in, in ways that are difficult to understand, the concepts we use might be difficult to understand, the language. We also have another barrier, which comes in the, the sort of methods that a lot of us use are very difficult to, to translate easily um, into digestible bits that, that people, normal people can kind of understand. Now, some of us are better at, than that at others. I mean, there are people that are very good at having a very complicated, like formal model or a statistical analysis that's very complicated, but they can kind of distill it into, you know, some important points. But, you know, nevertheless, I think a lot of us uh, do kind of suffer from this problem of communication. It's like a science communication problem at the end of the day. We have, we think we know a lot about international relations. We think we know a lot about policy. We just have a hard time communicating that to the policy world. 
another aspect of this that's sort of on the professionalization side that I, that I do think is, is somewhat relevant is that um, historically academics, another problem that we have is that, that academics have not been rewarded <clears throat> for doing policy work. So uh, typically, you know, for if you want to get tenure at a major university, you have to publish in peer-reviewed journals, uh, things like op-eds, things like, um, you know, getting on MSNBC and doing a guest spot or uh, writing even for a magazine that's sort of focused uh, on foreign policy might not be enough uh, to get you tenure. And so a lot of people have, have sort of dissuaded would-be uh, political scientists who want to become public intellectuals from going that route because you know, the, the advice is typically if you want to get tenure, you need to publish academic work. So a lot of academics shy away from the, even the idea of trying to do policy-relevant stuff because it's not really rewarded. Um, unless you have you take sort of intrinsic value from the idea of participating in the policy making uh, process, and then the, the last sort of bit of it that on the academic side that I think is is gets sort of floated sometimes is that all, I think many academics don't view their job as to help the policy process. Um, it, it seems kind of weird to say that. I mean, I think a lot of people would make the argument you get into political scientists, you know, maybe not because you want to make the world better necessarily. That sounds kind of fluffy uh, and naive. But there is a sense of like a normative uh, component to most of, of what we do that at the end of the day, you kind of are doing your work because you want to have some value. Um, but a lot of people, I think, would say that the value is not for the policy community. Uh, the value is actually just to better understand how the world works. And so like if, I'm, if I have a theory about why war happens, I'm not creating that theory necessarily to prevent future wars. I just want to understand maybe historically why wars have happened or understand the conditions under which they're more likely to occur. But my, my, my job is not really to, to sort of do anything to help policymakers prevent wars. I'm, my, my goal is just to understand why war happened. So I think there's a lot of people in the academic uh, sphere that, that sort of look at what they do uh, as being disconnected just fundamentally from the, the policy process. Now, as we move from who's to blame, the academic side, to the policy side, I think one way to bridge or one way to understand that bridge has to do with that last group of people I, I, I talked about. Who, who might feel that there's a problem when you try to create theories and, and empirical work for the policy community in the sense that once you have your theories out there, once you have your work out there, uh, it sort of takes on a life of its own. And so it, it becomes uh, a consumable product uh, for anybody to, to take and do what, with it what they will. And so there's been some sort of discussion recently, especially about the role that certain ideas and, and theories might have. So if I have a theory, let's say, that um, uh, talks about a clash of civilizations, right? This is one that comes up a lot. This is Sam Huntington's you know, sort of famous idea that, you know, basically that you can explain sort of conflict and the trajectory of, of uh, world history as a sort of clash between people that have, you know, certain ideologies or, or uh, religious affiliations that feed into ideology and so on. And a lot of people think that this theory is, is not only empirically not correct, uh, but also quite dangerous, because if you adopt that philosophy and you think that this theory is correct, you might you might act accordingly. And so some academics are actually very shy about contributing to the policy uh, process because they don't want their ideas being used for nefarious reasons, certainly. But even less sinister than that, once your idea is out there, it's like it's like Frankenstein. It takes on a life of its own. And so while you might think that you have a theory that's been created uh, just to explain the world and understand what's going on. Once it's out there, it could be used for any, any purpose. Um, and so the, the Clash of the Civilizations thesis might be a sort of uh, a very you know, obvious version of that problem. But I think there are people who are, are a little bit afraid that, that the policymakers will use their, um, their research for, for not the right, the right reason. 
And then lastly, I think it's, it is important to talk about why some academics uh, are skeptical that the problem is actually on the academic side and, and rather the problem is more on the uh, policymaker side. And the arguments here, I mean, there's, there's a number of them, but I'll highlight just a couple of, of different things. I think there's a sense in which many of us have, and I, and I admit to sharing this uh, view, it's, it's not as if policymakers are necessarily begging us uh, for our insights, right? So I, I haven't really encountered too many policymakers who are like knocking on my door and being like, Professor Holmes, can you tell me all about diplomacy? Uh, tell me what diplomacy is, please. I know I do this for a living, but I would like you, I would like you to tell me what it is. So I think there's that problem where a lot of policymakers, you know, are kind of skeptical that we have a lot to offer to begin with. But, but you know, sort of more important uh, uh, than that, my view is that a lot of policymakers, not all, but a lot of them use academic research not to sort of form beliefs about what they should do, but rather to justify the beliefs that they already have. And so, you know, what I, what I see when I look out in the world, the sort of, you know, bureaucracy of the policymaking uh, establishment, uh, when I look at instances of, of policymakers using academic research, more often than not, it's to justify some policy that they want to enact. And so they, they sort of do the thing that a lot of people do is they, they pick the things that agree with what they say or want to be true, and, they, and, to, and use them for their purposes, and then they disregard everything else. And so this idea that we're sort of engaged in this marketplace of, of ideas, and we're, we have a science, and we're really trying to get at the truth, and then that truth is going to feed in somehow to the policymaking world, and policymakers are going to say, finally, I see the light, I know what diplomacy is, I know how to pursue it, uh, I know what, why wars occur, and when they don't occur, I know what, what I should be doing to prevent financial crises. It seems to me that it's, it's a little bit, and this is a more sinister view, I'm more cynical, it seems to be that, that rather it's just a case of we're producing knowledge, but how that knowledge gets used is much more sort of cherry pick than we would like to, to think. And so that, that bothers me. The last thing I'll say, Jeffrey, and, and then I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. I think the idea that math and statistics and methods uh, are the problem is also very misguided. Uh, before the Iraq war, there was an a, a, a ad taken out in the New York Times uh, by leading international relations people. And this, this included the staunch realists, liberals, constructivists, pretty everybody uh, was represented in terms of their group. Um, and then in that ad, basically what the argument was, was that we should not invade Iraq, right? And the reasons given were not regression tables, and they weren't formal models. They were bullet points that said things like, uh, we don't have an exit strategy if we go in. They said things like, this is a bad idea because it's going to threaten uh, you know, countries in the in the region, right? And and actually, if you go back and look at that ad, a lot of things they said were true, if not all the bullet points were true. But these were the digestible bullet points that policymakers claim that they want. And it was backed by science. So all the footnotes had, you know, reams and reams of articles in international organization and APSR and all these other journals, but it was given to policymakers in exactly the way that they claim they want the information. And I don't think it's the case that because Bush disregarded the New York Times ad, it's validation of this, this argument. But I think it shows that, you know, even when you're able to give policymakers what they say they want, I'm a little skeptical that that, that is actually addressing the problem, because I don't think the problem is, at the end of the day, the math. I think the problem is that we're often telling policymakers things that they don't want to hear. And when they don't want to hear those things, they're less likely to use that, that knowledge and that research in their, in their policymaking. And the other thing is, uh, from, a, from a policymaker perspective, I mean, as somebody who studies psychology um, and sort of psychological processes, I mean, the, the last sort of 30 to 40 years of, of research in psychology reinforces this basic concept that 
you know, people people come to beliefs um, through a very complicated process. You know, it's it's your environment, it's your genes, like there's all kinds of things that go on. Your training, where you went to high school, where you went to college, you know, your life experiences, of course. And once you have these beliefs, they become very oftentimes hardened. And so the idea that somebody would change what they they believe to be true because an academic article was written or because somebody at a university says, you know what, I know you I know you believe that this is true, uh, but it's actually not. That's very difficult for people to to accept. You know, beliefs are hard to change. And the, the biases that we, we know exist, like confirmation bias, make this incredibly difficult. So I think even just at a, at a human psychology level. Uh, the gap is likely to continue to persist because it's just very difficult to convince people who who already have beliefs. And you don't get to be in, in, in the Pentagon or the State Department or the NSA or the CIA without having beliefs. It just doesn't work that way because you've you've gone up through the process and you've become you know somebody who is very knowledgeable about foreign affairs. And then for somebody to come. All along- right. But 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 Marcus, where, where do those beliefs come from? Right. So so the, the people who are in the Defense Department making these decisions, they you're saying they have beliefs. I agree with you. Where'd they get them? Well, that's the complicated process. I mean, that's they get those from where they went to college. Yeah, they got them from us, right? So sometimes, so, sometimes, right? Sometimes, so, yeah. so I feel like one response to some of this bridging the gap stuff is that, well, whose fault is this? Is is some is sometimes the way people talk about it? And I think that one way to combat the gap, if it exists, is to make sure that students who are getting out of our classes understand some actual political science. Um, and, and that this is one important way that we bridge the gap is educating people who are going to go on into these roles and making sure that they understand the real stuff and not, you know, this kind of version of, of uh, political science or international relations that has made it kind of into government discussions, into policy discussions. Jeffrey, where did um, President George W. Bush go to college? Uh, that would be Yale University. Right. Yeah. I feel like at Yale, they probably do a pretty good job. Of, of giving students, you know, a, a fair assessment of, of political science, right? Now, I don't know if Bush took an international relations class. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Uh, but I would assume... Well, but if he took one, but if he took one, he would have taken it many, many years ago, right? <laughs> like, like, like okay. that's, that's the thing that, that, that I think people are sometimes missing in this discussion is that, mm-hmm. like, modern political science, right, depending on, you know, who you're taking these classes from, um, is a little bit different than the political science that... Even you and I learned as undergraduates in, in, in college, and it is much more um, scientific in its approach. It is much more kind of um, methodologically sophisticated. And to the extent that some of that is coming across in our courses to our students, that in and of itself is helping, I think, to bridge the gap in the future. Uh, maybe. I'm just a little skeptical. I mean, if that were true, wouldn't we expect all else being equal, like the policymaking process to get better over time? I mean, I, I grant you that, you know, we, we probably are more sophisticated in political science. And maybe what George W. Bush was taught at Yale, uh, now we know a little bit more. And, you know, maybe our, the syllabus that, that he took compared to the syllabus he took, if he took it right now, would be very different. But I'm actually not all that convinced that that he would have made any different decisions. I mean, I, I don't know if George W. Bush took a government 204 with me or international security with you that he wouldn't have invaded Iraq. And so this is this gets back to my this gets back to my earlier uh, point. It, beliefs come from lots of places, right? Y- your education is one of them, but I don't think you can discount all the other things that that occur. Your your life experiences, whether you served in the military. I mean, you know, Elizabeth Saunders has a, a, a great 
don't know if I remember if it was a book or art series of articles about this, but you know, like leader experiences, like what, what's, what's happened to you in your lifetime that, that, uh, that has an effect on, on who you are and what you believe and what your ideology is. And, um, and so I think it's, I think it's certainly fair to say that, you know, maybe the, the things that we teach in our classes are, are important. And certainly that does instill, um, certain, certain beliefs and, and at least some people. But I also think it's just a, it's a drop in the bucket compared to all of the things that, that are contributing to the belief systems that uh, people who certainly get to become president have. And then if that you sort of work your way down from there, you know, you start to realize that forming beliefs is very complicated. The, the last thing I would say, Jeff, too, is this puts a lot of pressure on us, because if you're right, if the Kaplan thesis is right, that, you know, basically what we teach students in our intro classes and in our international security classes uh, will ultimately have some fund, you know, fundamental uh, say in what they come to believe. Well, not not become... the intro classes, just the international school. Okay, in your, in your class anyway. Yeah. So once they become Secretary of Defense or they work in the State Department, there's a lot of pressure on you because that means that you that, that means that you are, you are teaching the, the next generation. And... I know. I feel I feel that pressure every day, Marcus. And and like today, I was like, you know, I got to say something in class that these students can take with them into their future careers. And so I talked about how when you're um, when you're renting a U-Haul, you got to purchase the loss damage waiver because your auto insurance tends not to cover you when you're renting a moving van. LDWs on on rental on truck. That's exactly yeah. right. I feel like that that kind of wisdom. That's that's the real stuff. That's the stuff that students take my class to to get. <laughs> okay, but, but I was just letting that, that sink in. Yeah. So uh, listen, Marcus. So like, I let you go for a while, but I, I got to kind of uh, pull this back in because you said this is the last thing like five times already. So, oh, okay. so, so let me I tend to do that a lot. No, no worries. So let, let me just say a, a couple things about this broader debate. And like, so going back to what the way you talked about this initially in terms of like, why do we see this? So Joe Nye has written about this kind of extensively, among other people. Um, uh, Joe Nye is a, a Harvard uh, political scientist and um, former senior government official. He was uh, undersecretary of defense, I believe, um, for a little while there. He, he's, he's written about and a number of people have, about how the increasing kind of specialization of the field of political science has churned off policymakers in a way, right? That because um, the professional incentives that you kind of referred to earlier have forced or pushed academics to pick off smaller and smaller things about the world to study, um, that the, uh, the upshot of that is that the stuff that we're producing now as a, a professional political scientist is much less useful, ultimately, to policymakers than the stuff that these grand theorists of yore were, were producing, right? And so this comes back to the critique that we were talking about last week in this debate between um, paradigmatic theory and the kind of um, mid-level theory that I, I'm more comfortable in. So when I have a theory of, like, how the, this specific element of the nuclear nonproliferation regime works— that's like too narrow for a policymaker to be particularly interested in or for that to be particularly useful for them. The, the kind of corollary to this, what comes along with this, is the different kind of methods and models that we use to study political science now, as opposed to when Joe Nye was studying political science back in the day. And, and you know, uh, Mearsheimer's made a, a similar point. Stephen Walt has made a similar point that then these are kind of famous political scientists for those not not uh, down with down with the, the lingo there. So the, the kind of specialized methods that we use today maybe are turning off policymakers because they don't want to read regression tables 
and the kind of uh, theoretical formal models that, that people are using uh, are also turning off policymakers because they use letters uh, and, and, and numbers instead of like words, right? That they're, they're kind of formalized in a way that those fragile policymakers can't, can't handle. And, and Naya specifically makes a point that I think is interesting, that, that the, the importance of this comes down to seeding the field to those who have a particular agenda to get across, Right, that the problem with this more broadly for political scientists isn't just that like we want prestige and we want be able to be able to say we're influencing policy. It's that if the the best political scientists are not focused on policy relevant questions, who's going to talk about the policy relevant questions? The the not so good political scientists, the ones who have some kind of agenda, right? Who aren't doing real scientific research. And they're going to kind of poison the minds of the fragile policymakers in, in this view. So for, for Nye and others who are kind of writing in this, in this vein, this specialization has led to a gap that is really important because it kind of twists the direction that policymakers are going. And they're no longer having the benefit of the collective wisdom of the international relations scholarly community. And that's bad. That's a, a sad story. I think there are kind of three possibilities here. So I'll just lay them out. One is that maybe there is no gap at all, right? And this is, this is all, you know, much ado about nothing. Another is maybe there's a gap, but it doesn't actually matter that there's a gap. And then the third possibility is maybe there's a gap, but it's the policy folks' fault. And you kind of like uh, touched on this a little bit. But let me like talk, talk about each of these. So on the, the question of maybe there is no gap at all, we should ask ourselves, how would we know if there is actually a gap, right? If there is actually some divide between the policy world and the academic world. And I got to say, like, in my little world of, of academia, I don't feel like there is a gap. I feel like the policymakers and the academics are talking all the time. I see in the policymakers at workshops and conferences and, and you know, they get the occasional email and the occasional consulting gig. And like, you know, there, there's that, uh, that kind of interplay between people in my little area of nuclear weapons research, which I will say is maybe the one of the areas that is kind of closest to the policy world when it comes to academic research. So this is an area where academics have kind of long had a really strong role in policymaking, going back to like Thomas Schelling um, and uh, um, kind of the, the early work of nuclear deterrence uh, after World War II. So this is an area where maybe there, we wouldn't see as much of a gap. But it's hard to really measure how the, the impact of political science itself on policymaking. How would we even see that? Uh, policymakers tend not to like cite uh, academics in their in their memos, but we wouldn't expect them to, right? And and so it's it's really a, a tricky thing to measure. You might look at hiring as one way to do this, right? Are political science graduates being hired into these positions? Um, these people who are talking about the gap frequently complain that all the high level treasury officials are economists, but the high level State Department officials aren't are academic political scientists. But that seems like kind of a a stupid thing to complain about, right? So it may be that there isn't even a gap at all, and this is something we don't need to worry about. If there is a gap, there's a strong argument here that it doesn't matter, right? And you kind of touched on this idea that maybe this isn't just, maybe this just isn't our job. As academic political scientists, why is it my problem to make sure that the policymakers are like listening to my research? No one asks like art historians about the policy relevance of, uh, of their academic work, right? And if you open a physics journal or a math journal, a professional journal of the field, and you're a policymaker, do we expect the policymaker to be able to just like read that and understand what's going on? 
no, of course not, because it's a it's a specialized scientific field where academics are talking to other academics. And so that that's like a perfectly normal thing about an academic field. And, and, and it seems odd to expect that somehow policymakers would just be able to drop in and engage in that stuff anyway. So it could be that there there is a gap, but like, who cares if there's a gap? And it's not something that, that we need to be overly concerned about. And then finally, maybe there's a gap, but it's the policymaker's fault, <laughs> right? And, and I think um, that, was, that was part of what you were, you were talking about here. So one thing I kind of want to say about some of this critique is, okay, policymakers, learn some statistics already. Like, it's, it's, the, it's the 2000s. Like it's okay for you to know how to run a regression. And I think increasingly, policymakers do understand statistics sufficiently to um, read academic political scientists if they wanted to, right? They may not want to, because um, it's, you know, not tremendously exciting sometimes. But especially with kind of the advent of big data and a lot of data science kind of work, um, which has credibility because like all of the economy is running on data science now, right? Policymakers are more and more interested in applying the lessons of these kinds of, method- of methodologies to issues in all kinds of policy areas, including international security. So um, I know that there is interest from folks in the Defense Department and the intelligence community about kind of machine learning and statistical learning applied to my little world of nuclear proliferation um, and certainly uh, identifying where civil wars are most likely, where political instability is most likely. There are a long list of policy areas where policymakers actually closely follow um, some of this stuff because they've gotten educated about what the state of the art is in political science and are willing to engage with it. So to some extent, you kind of want to say to policymakers, okay, if you think this is an issue, the the answer isn't tell the political scientists to do less scientific stuff. It's start to understand what where the where the state of the science is and maybe even seek out the views of of academic political scientists when that would be useful to you. And I I actually think a lot of that actually does happen, um, that academic political scientists, particularly big name political scientists, um, do do a lot of work in bridging the gap between Um, policy and political science. I I think it's an issue for the students in our classes, though, in the sense that most of them aren't really interested in a career in political science, the academic field, and I would advise them not to be interested in said career, right? I think far more of them are interested in a career in policy. And so I think it actually is important. I know we we both do this in our classes. Like, think about what is the policy relevance of some of the stuff that we're talking about. And and one of the reasons for this podcast, in fact, is to kind of demonstrate how you can apply some of the theories that we talk about in our classes to real things in the policy world. And because it can be done, right? Like we, I personally, this is just a personal decision on my part. I personally want my work to be policy relevant. I care about that. I came from the policy world. I um, think it's important. And I really am trying to address puzzles that I think matter in the world. And that I think if my policy colleagues saw what I see, they would adjust their policy to to incorporate that. Um, and I, that's something I want to do. And so I, I think it is important for those of us who are interested in that, in bridging that gap, that we keep this issue in mind and really work to explicitly examine the policy relevance of the, of the theories that we're developing in, inter, in international relations. Wow, Jeff, that was great. Um, unfortunately, I think this is one of those instances where we don't disagree that much. I, I really wish we did, but I, I don't feel like we do. Let me just say a couple of reactions quickly to what you said. Um, first of all, I, I, also, I, I actually agree. I've been shocked how interested policymakers are in, in, in my work. 
Like I've been invited to the State Department many times to do like these the sessions with them, and they're like, are they interested? They that that is shocking. I will say, I yeah, that is shocking. And they find me, they find me somehow, you know, and they invite me, and it's great, you know. And and so I I've had no shortage of, and I, and I, I'm not saying this like toot my own horn. I'm saying this because I to me at my personal experience, there is no gap because my work people see me, the people of the policy community. Now it doesn't mean I'm right. Doesn't mean they agree with it. But they're at least interested in hearing what I have to say, which is great. Like, that's what they should be doing. They should be critical. They should think about, like, why Holmes is probably wrong. But whatever. At least I'm in the room, right? The one interesting thing I will say is when I have done these things, uh, and sometimes they're more in sort of conference-oriented uh, environments with other people there. And, and again, I'm not saying this to my own horn. The people that they invite tend to be fairly big names and do tend to be people who write, and let's put it this way, very accessible ways right and so these are these are the fairly big names in the in the discipline who um you know have gotten where they are partially because of of what they've published of course but also because their ideas are very clear easy to understand somebody on richmond road can understand you know what they're doing at. and so that leads that that's not evidence necessarily that people are afraid of math and they don't want to you know have regression tables put on a, a powerpoint slide or something like that but it is it is an indication that science communication uh, to me is important. And, and this is this is one area where I, I do I do want to stand up for the academics. I actually think that academics do an extreme we bend over backwards. Like whenever you publish an article, the, the editors will say things like we need at the at the end you should have lessons for policymakers or you should be able to distill your ideas into very, you know, digestible things. I am I'm often shocked when I read an article, like a, a, a formal model, something I don't understand very well. I can still understand what the main point is. I might not understand how the model works completely. I might not understand all the statistics behind it because it's some method I'm not aware of. But the, but I feel like in our discipline, academics are actually pretty good at at being cognizant of this and explaining in relatively clear terms what the upshot of their research is. And so the idea that you sort of have to be able to dig into everything in the method to understand what the point is, to me, is is not true. I think a lot of people would benefit from reading an academic article in international relations, even if they don't understand completely what's going on in the methods section, they can understand the conclusion, they can understand the, the argument, you know, and, and have a vague sense of what the data looks like and what they're doing with the data, even if you don't understand exactly what's going on. Now, at an, you're not going to be able to sort of critique it at an academic level and say, well, you know, you're clustered errors or, you know, you can't do that necessarily. But you can say, I've learned enough from this article to, to know something now. And I can use that that going forward. So from a science communication perspective, I, I agree with you, Jeff. I think this is one of the points you were trying to make. I think we do this relatively well when we when we do it. I don't I don't really see it as a as a huge problem. Now maybe I'm the wrong person to ask because I'm in the community, but it seems to me like we we are we work very hard to to try to communicate our ideas to the outside world, usually. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think uh policymakers are busy. And 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 so part of the issue here is if you are an academic that is really concerned about getting your message out to the policy world because you're working on something that you think has some relevance for what's going on. Not all of us are doing that kind of work too, right? There are, there are academics who are working on stuff that just isn't matter for policy right now. And that that's okay. That's, they're trying to increase this body of knowledge in the world. And that's, that's like a noble pursuit, right? There, there's no reason to think that everything we do has to be relevant to policy. But for those of us who are doing work that we think is policy relevant, policymakers are busy. And so if we want our work to be noticed, then maybe you have to jump through a couple of additional hoops in terms of like writing up a version of it that gets posted on one of these blogs that that cover that stuff that's more for a policy audience or writing a version of it that goes in foreign affairs or foreign policy 
uh, magazines rather than the version that goes in the American Political Science Review. And and the the methods thing factors in here a little bit because Marcus, I mean, one of the reasons that that your stuff might be more accessible is that there is, um, I'll put this nicely, uh, less math. Um, a, that, a, a lack of sophistication, if you th- that's what I meant to say, right? <laughs> right. So, like, like you're not running a lot of statistics. You're using case studies, which are maybe easier for for policymakers to understand off the off the top of their head, right? So, I, I feel like your your stuff may translate with less additional work to a policy audience. Whereas when I'm running like some kind of complicated machine learning uh, approach. Um, if I want a policymaker to understand that, I got to help, right? I got to give them like the upshot of it if I really want that message to get across. I was just going to, I want to dissent. I, I, I agree with what you said uh, 99%. The, the one area that I dissent is I don't think the policymakers are reading the, the easy to understand case studies either. So I think the point, the, the earlier point that you made is actually the more relevant one. They don't have time to really care about the methods. I, I'm just more cynical. I think oftentimes the methods become an excuse not to read something or not to try to understand because they, they say to themselves, you know, this is this looks complicated. This is hard to understand. I'm not going to I'm not going to do it. I don't think they're reading a lot of case studies either. And it's 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 not because they don't understand. It's because they don't want to read them because that takes too much time. Right. So I, that that would be my take on that. So I think you're you're basically right. But my 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 one sort of area of, of caution there is that I think because they don't have much time. The methods often are secondary to the main point, right? Which is here, here's my theory, here's the argument, and here's what I think is true. How I got there, you could go read that stuff if you have time and are interested and you can understand it. But I think a lot of I, I think a lot of policymakers and indeed a lot of academics stop after the what's the main point of this? And I'm gonna trust that your methods are probably fine, or they're probably like everything else, a mixed bag, and you probably don't do exactly what you said you did in a very convincing way. But nevertheless, we're going to stop at the sort of like main main upshot. Yeah, well, it reminds me a little bit of like all of the studies I've been reading about COVID. All my spare time is basically devoted to reading COVID studies. Same. Um, as, as with all of us right now, right? And, you know, thank God I have Twitter to like explain to me what I should be paying attention to. Because, I, I mean... I, I pull up the studies. I try to get a sense of like what the, the underlying message is. But the fact that I can't understand exactly the methodology of all of these studies absolutely does not mean that the people running these studies should stop using sophisticated methodologies. Exactly. A hundred percent agree. Like, right. like it, it is totally good. We want more sophisticated methodologies. We want better COVID studies, even beyond what I am as the non-expert am able to understand. That is a good situation. So if the policymakers are like, you know what, this math stuff is too sophisticated for me. The, the answer is not to stop using the math, right? The answer is not to like dumb down the methods sufficiently that people with no uh, specialized training can understand them. The, the answer is to let's get another version of this article um, that takes out the methodological stuff and focuses on what are the takeaways for the policymaker if you buy the methods. In the same way that Twitter is helping me understand what the main takeaways of these um, of these COVID studies are without me having to understand exactly what's going on under the hood. Um, and I think it doesn't necessarily have to be like a blog post, right? We can distill down the, the, the central elements of this study into something that policymakers can understand. And that's what we're going to deliver in the briefing when we get invited to this to this meeting, right, or this conference. Um, and it's not so much about like, well, here's how my machine learning model worked. It's about here are my findings. If you if you buy that what I'm doing is a legitimate way of doing it, here are my findings and here's the upshot of the findings. And that's the thing we're going to end up talking about in the same way that when COVID researchers are giving a, 
a public presentation, right? Not, not to other experts. They're not emphasizing like, you know, exactly how they went through the process of measuring the antibody titer and all this stuff, right? They're talking about what are the outcomes that matter to people who are making decisions in the world. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and again, getting back to what I was, was saying earlier, I mean, like COVID, I think this is, is ultimately about science communication. You know, this is, this is an area that I, I feel that doesn't get enough attention. Um, and it should be like its own academic discipline that that really has like we need if there's a bridging the gap, it's between political science and, and science communication. Like We need to understand better how to take the the things that seem right to us and obvious to us and the policy recommendations that we're, we think make a lot of sense and communicate them out in a way that that are very easy to understand. Because what, what occurs to me is that we think you and I might think that what we're saying is just obvious, you know, because we've been doing this for a long time. We've been trained in this stuff. Uh, but it might not be obvious to, to somebody who's who's not in this world. And so figuring out how to effectively communicate what it, our findings are and the relevance for them, I think that's a non-trivial part of all this. And so that is that's something where I think we probably all can get better at that. Um, the one other thing I will uh, two other things I want to say, one pr- one productive and one sort of uh, cynical. The productive thing is that the UK has gone through this uh, process. They call it the Research Excellence Framework where to get promoted and to get tenure and things like that, you actually have to show, and this is, this is somewhat comical, what your impact has been, right? And so and this gets to the problem you mentioned, which is like, how do you show, it's very difficult to show like you had meaningful, you know, impact on society or in our case, you know, foreign policy. Uh, and, and everybody complains about it. Nearly every person in Britain, Britain or the UK I talk about, I'll talk to complains about this process because they think it's, it's so, uh, well, number one, it's time consuming, but it's also just kind of inane. Like this idea that you could ever measure what your impact is, because again, it's like you're you're putting this stuff out there into the ether, and who who takes it and learns from it? Who knows? Unless they send you an email or a tweet or something like that, you're never going to know who's reading your your stuff. Um, and so they they've the UK has developed this system, and it seems like, and I'm not an expert in it, but it seems like it's been a bit of a failure because they they can't, as you point out, can't really measure the impact that people have. The last thing I will say, just to end my my comments on a cynical note, and, and putting the blame back on the academics. I think often it's the case that the gap exists because people are upset that policy was made that goes against what they think should yeah. have happened, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And so, you know, they, they, it, it's not that they're, they're so worried that policymakers and academics are disconnected, generally speaking, but rather they were disconnected in this one particular instance where I have a book that says, you know what, face-to-face diploma is a good thing. And, you know, Biden didn't do a good job in that summit or whatever. Uh, and I get upset that no one's listening to me. You know, I've been making this argument for a long time and it's nobody's listening. So I think that there's room. And, and this discussion has brought up a lot of areas where academics and policymakers are like, can sort of self-reflect as to like why this, this might be an issue. There's, there's room for academics to kind of put the ego aside sometimes and realize this is not about them. You know, this is about, you know, creating knowledge that that's gets used. But just because somebody did something in the policy world that, that doesn't conform with what you thought should happen based on your research doesn't necessarily mean it's not great evidence that there's a, a big gap. That's a, that is an excellent point. I, I completely agree. <laughs> Marcus, I think uh, maybe we'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining me today. This was a fun one. And hopefully next time we can disagree a little bit more. Yeah, I hope so. Um, and thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. But the thing is, there's just something about sports where when you when you have a team that you root for and that team is expected to lose and you have like low expectations going into the event and they win, 
it's like the best feeling in the like it's the the worst feeling is we think you're gonna win and you lose right but like when you feel like you just don't it's probably not gonna happen the everybody the odds makers think you're not gonna win everybody thinks you're not gonna win and then you win and, and in pretty impressive fashion it's just that's that's just phenomenal you know like there's just that's like one of the best feelings yeah and <laughs> what anyway. do you think your chances are against tampa bay very poor yeah but again if they happen to win i'll be like elated mostly because my expectations are so low but don't, i don't know part of it is like get your hopes up now you're in it you know and then you get crushed it's unfortunate that's true you feel bad i feel bad thinking that they're gonna like you know probably get swept um i do feel bad about that yeah the one thing a-rod said last night that i actually agree with it does seem to be the case that when the postseason starts there's like a reset button that gets hit like for some reason it has it must have you know the stress of the environment or something the the people who can perform under pressure all of a sudden like rise up and the people who stink they continue to stink but it sort of like reshuffles things a little bit like it's sort of like you know you could have been doing whatever during the, the regular season and then the postseason rolls around and some people just flip a switch and they're i mean i guess this is like in every sport like you just have the, these people that have the, the ability to perform under pressure but in baseball it does seem to be that you know there's certain teams that just play really well in the postseason yeah you know, and it might have to do with like like the Yankees. You know, they always go for these like home run hitters and these like big you know free agents that they, you know they hit the ball a mile. And then when you face good pitching in the postseason, because everybody's going to throw their best pitchers at you, you don't do as well. So maybe there's a rational explanation, but it seems like there's just like this this something in the ether that changes. This would be the podcast, by the way. We should make this a sports podcast. Sure. If Nate Silver could dip his toes into epidemiology, I mean, we can we can dip our toes into something we don't know anything about professionally. Yeah, you can make the argument we do that every week, but. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's that's kind of how it is. Yeah, uh, I just feel like there's this there's this you sometimes see when when teams like kind of barely make it over the over the line of whatever, like the the first playoff series or like just to get into the playoffs or, or whatever. There's that that last push to like finally make it. Then they get swept like immediately in the next in the next round. Right. Yeah, that's probably what's gonna happen here. In 1987, okay. Jesus, you remember 1987? Wow, I remember 1987, which was, I don't know, I was uh, nine, something like that, and um, I was like the first year that I was like, I can remember, I, I remember watching baseball like as a very small child, but but 87 was like a big year for me because I was like watching every game, and the Tigers, Troy Tigers, my my hometown team, were pretty good that year. Uh, they had, they had a good year, started off kind of poorly, but like ended strong. I think they won like. 97 games, something like that. 98 games. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, this was like the remnants of the 1984 Tigers that was like this, this incredible team. Right. Yeah. So they got down to like the last week of the, of the season and they were down like three, I want to say three, three and a half games, something like that Mm -hmm. to Toronto. And the last day of the season was this like would decide it was the, it was a Detroit Toronto like four game series to end the end the year or something mm-hmm. it was crazy and mm-hmm. and as a la- came down to the last day of the season whoever won that game was going to win and I remember it was a uh, like a one nothing victory it was crazy crazy game Frank Tanana pitching I remember it so clearly right yeah and then they won this game this was like this final push came back from this this huge deficit the last the last week of the season make it to the the league championship series against the Minnesota Twins. And the Tigers were like a far superior team to the Twins, right? Like all the action was in the AL East that year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they just, they, they lost badly. Uh, they got crushed. <laughs> they but, lost badly. Yeah, it was like, uh, I think we won one of those games. And I went to, um, I went to the, the 
uh, one of the playoff games. And uh, I remember it was uh, it was freezing. It was because it's it was like Detroit, and that's oh, it's October, right? I mean, it's it... well, and it was pre pre climate change, right? So like, right, oh well, yeah, eighties. It was it was like cold in October, um, yeah. and and uh, I miss those days. Yeah, it was freezing. I remember like being huddled like in blankets um, at yeah. like Old Tiger Stadium, and yeah. they had uh, <laughs> Tiger Stadium. The old Tiger Stadium had these pillars. <laughs> in like just in the stands to like hold the thing up oh that's like family park right where they sell like obstructed view seats where you can't see anything yeah so i so of course like my seats you know were obstructed view seats because i I can't get the good seats so i'm sitting behind a pole like huddled in a blanket nursing a hot chocolate oh sounds great like the the entire game to keep warm and i remember my favorite player um daryl evans Mm -hmm. um got uh picked off third base (laughs) he was was, like the tying run (laughs) That's great. In like, That's a great way to lose. In a, yeah, in a, in a play like never before seen and ha- never seen since, right? It just in its ridiculousness yeah. and its horror. And uh, that was that was the end of that. So. Boy. That's a good story. Yeah, I mean, like the 80s. The, I mean, for our listeners, the 80s were a good time. You know, it was it was it was a good time back then. The the the, the release of the Nintendo Entertainment System. I was going to say that was the was the highlight of the eighties. <laughs> cold cold weather. <laughs> yeah, we had cold weather and we had Nintendo. What, what, what more do you want? Yeah. Cold War was still going on, sort of. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, good times. Anyway, yeah.